Hey, welcome to the podcast of The Kelly Cotrera Show for Monday, September the 28th. Coming up in the podcast, if you're moving into a new home with an existing security system, your security could be at risk. We'll get to more on that with Ann Kavukian. And with the colder weather approaching, Restaurants Canada is asking the feds to support a meal subsidy. Imagine getting paid to eat out. But first, Friday, the Toronto District School Board uh, confirmed their first COVID-19 outbreak at Glen Park Public School in North York. And there were um, two students that tested positive. In, and now two grade five, six split classes are isolating for 14 days. And yesterday, a second COVID-19 outbreak at Mason Road Junior, Junior Public School in Scarborough has that school closed for a week um, as uh, public health is investigating. We welcome to the show Ryan Bird, spokesperson for the Toronto District School Board. Welcome to the show, Ryan. Good to have you on. Good morning, Kelly. So at Mason Junior uh, School, three staff members and one student tested positive for COVID-19. At Glen Park, the two infected students are now uh, isolating to recover for their illness. Why is Mason closed for a week and Glen Park staying open? Can you make sense of that for us? Yeah, in, in the end, it's Toronto Public Health that gives us the advice on what to do. You know, whether it's like both schools have an outbreak, but uh, in uh, Mason Road Junior Public School, that was decided to be closed. Uh, for temporarily for a week as they continue their investigation. My understanding uh, is that with Mason Road, it was more that we had our fourth case. And the whole concept of an outbreak uh, means that they think there it, it's a possibility that that spread is within the school as opposed to, you know, uh, Kelly getting it from her family and coming to school and Ryan getting it for her family for coming to school. That's two separate um, uh cases and, and, and transmission. But when they say it's possible that it is within the school setting, that transmission within the school setting, that's what really starts pointing to more towards an outbreak. In this case, again, Toronto Public Health would be the best ones to advise, but it's when we had that fourth case and that possibility, that increased possibility uh, of transmission within the school that I believe they, they made the decision to temporarily close it for a week while they investigate it and really try to figure out um, is that is that one method of transmission? Is it multiple methods of transmission? And that's what they're looking at right now. Ryan, refresh our memory here. Um, what does Toronto Public Health classify as an outbreak when it comes to our schools? So actually, I've got it. I've got it right in front of me. So um, and this goes along with the Ministry of Health, Ministry of Education. An outbreak in a school uh, is if there have been two or more people who have tested positive for COVID-19 and are linked in the school bus or after school setting over a 14 day period. Uh, so that's that, that more technical definition of an outbreak. But again, it really comes down to that possibility of transmission within the school that they look at. Okay. Let's run through the protocol at the TDSB when it comes to outbreaks. What happens? So in this case, uh, I can tell you already the uh, an electrostatic disinfecting machine has arrived at the school. And that's something that we're using uh, not only sometimes it's in specific classes, but in this case, given there's an outbreak at the school, we're running this disinfectant spray machine throughout the school. And basically that just disinfects all the surfaces that it can um, it, it can reach. So we're doing obviously a deep cleaning of the school during this week while students and staff are not there. Um, and then in this case, Toronto Public Health has advised uh, children uh, and staff from the school to self-isolate for this week, that time period between Monday and Friday. Um, and then they will update us later in the week to say, yes, you can return next Monday or no, we think we should stay out for another week or, you know, to make it that 14 day period. 
Ryan, who informs the school of uh, a possible outbreak? Is it the parents? Is it the Toronto Public Health? So sometimes, so for cases specifically, just a confirmed case, that could come from Toronto Public Health or it could come from the staff member or or family in the school. When it comes to an outbreak, that is at the discretion of Toronto Public Health, who would then advise the school and the board um, that indeed they are declaring an outbreak and then they'd provide the information necessary. Okay, and then who informs the parents? The school board? Yeah, so for example, last night we sent out a letter um, from the TDSB, but then attached a Toronto Public Health letter along with that that explains the definition of an outbreak, um, what to do, self-isolate. Um, if you have more information of how, how you want to or how you should self-isolate, here's a link here. Here's a COVID assessment center. If you feel you have symptoms and should be tested, here's that. So it really is a combination. But typically the school would send out the letter and then attach a Toronto Public Health letter with more info. And that's going to an email. Yeah, so that went out last night. Um, as soon as we could get that out, that went out last night. And then obviously we would have staff at the school uh, just to make sure that if for some reason someone didn't learn of that, that we can advise them, give them information um, that, that the school is closed. Okay, but nobody's getting uh, any call. Because to me, a call would be one of the quickest ways to reach people unless or a text or or something like that, so that you can get a response from them to know that you indeed have an outbreak and they shouldn't be coming to school. No, and that's a fair point. And you know what? I'd want to double check. We were, I do know that the school was looking at getting that call out last night. I just don't know if it actually went out. So I just have to confirm with the school. Uh, but typically our, our, our kind of school messenger, which is the program and software that we use to communicate with our families, has that availability, and they were working on that last night. I just don't know if it actually did go out, but I'd have to check. But that's absolutely uh, one of the options that we use to get the message out quickly. Right. Okay. And now I want to just go back. We've, you were talking about the uh, deep clean that's going on at Mason Road Junior Public School, where yep. three staff members and one student tested positive for COVID-19. It's closed for a week. At Glen Park, the uh, first outbreak that was announced on Friday, this involved uh Two grade uh, five, six classes, the split classes. So there were two infected students. So two classes have been told, go home and isolate. Are you, uh, over the weekend, did you do a deep clean at Glen Park in all of the classes or are you just focusing on those rooms where the kids were? Yeah, I'd have to double check. My understanding, it was, it was at the very least, it was the impacted classrooms where they were. Uh, and typically we would do that on the advice of Toronto Public Health. So if Toronto Public Health suggested uh, you know, just target those those classes that were impacted. That's typically what we've been doing. But obviously, um, with you know, with this school closed right now, we were able to get in. This is Mason Road. We were able to get in right now and, and be able to do that deep cleaning. I'm I'm almost positive that Glen Park received a deep cleaning over the weekend. But I should point out that um, really, these uh, the, we have enhanced cleaning at all of our schools with or without an outbreak. I can tell you that that's. You know, cleaning of high-touch surfaces multiple times a day, making sure that we're as clean and, and healthy as possible. But yeah, there was absolutely extra cleaning at Glen Park. I'm just not sure if it was a full school cleaning or if it was in the impacted areas as per Toronto Public Health. In an effort to keep everybody safe and keep the numbers down of uh, this possible second wave that we're in the midst of, uh, the TDSB, all the cases that happen at the TDSB are um, very transparent and they are available online. Is it the TDSB that's created this uh, COVID-19 advisory webpage or is it Toronto Public Health? And can you tell us a bit about it? 
Yeah, so the Ministry of Education asked all school boards to post this information on their websites. And what we wanted to do is make sure that we provide as much information as possible. So it's front and center when you visit tdsb.on.ca. And the TDSB maintains that list as we receive information um, from our schools in Toronto Public Health to kind of keep a as, as a most up-to-date list as possible. And that's updated over the weekends. It's updated in the evening so that we're being transparent. People know... Uh, the current snapshot of cases in the TDSB. And then as those um, students uh, students or staff members are able to return after a 14-day period and that it's no longer a concern, then schools would slowly drop off that list uh, as they're no longer uh, impacted. All right. Good to know. Well, uh, Ryan, I'm sure that you can agree today. It was a pleasure talking to me. I, I, it was an <laughs> absolute pleasure. I wholeheartedly agree. Well, I mean, because I wasn't calling yet on anything and asking you to explain anything that was incredibly uh, uncomfortable beyond the fact that there is an outbreak. But I mean, it's very straightforward. Yeah, no. And I appreciate that. No, I think we're we're really focused on just making sure, obviously, all of our schools are updated and our parents and stuff. And uh, we're obviously making sure that we stay in contact with TPH and make sure we follow all the uh, the precautions and their advice. So we're, we're doing that. Got yep. to be on it as quickly as possible. Thanks so much, Ryan. I appreciate your time today. Thanks, Kelly. Take care. Let me set up a terrifying situation for you. You buy a new house. You move in. uh, You know that previously it had a security system. You're mulling over whether you want to, you know, pay for the security monitoring or not. So in the meantime, you get a message out of the blue from someone that found you on Facebook. And funnily enough, they happen to be the person you bought the house from. And they say to you, look, I, I actually can get access into your whole entire security system and they prove it to you by asking you to stand alone in your front hall and then they start to unarm the system. They start to unlock doors. They unlock windows. They tell you that they can monitor when you leave the house and when you're home. How? It's with the security company's app that they still have access to. This is what a guy did in, uh, it happened in Alberta. He reached out to the homeowner that bought the house from him and he said, look, you know, the security system, it's still armed. And I asked the company to cancel the service weeks before you moved in and they still hadn't. After he went through that little rundown uh, with the new homeowner, he reached out to the company again and said, I still have access. And they said, well, you got to wait a couple more days before we turn it off. And he said, so you're going to give me access to someone else's houses, house. And I can literally go on this app I'm holding and I can watch them leave the house. I, I could walk up to the front door. I could unlock it. I could disarm the system. I could walk in. I could steal everything in the place because you have given me access. Funnily enough, right after he said that, 30 seconds later, they deactivated the app and he no longer had access to her security system. That is truly frightening. Why would a security company keep uh, a former owner and an app active after they've sold the house? Here to talk about it, Ann Kavukian, who, of course, you know as the executive director of the Global Privacy and Security by Design Center. Welcome, Ann. Good morning. Is this not the most outrageous story? I cannot believe it. You're supposed to feel secure with a security system in your house, and the security system is allowing someone to uh, make your life less secure. And and they should be held legally liable because the previous owner did exactly what we would want him to do. 
He called them. He said, I'm moving out. I, I want to disarm the system. I'm out of there. I've sold it to someone else. And then he followed up with an email confirming that to them. And yet they still don't turn it off when he's out of the house. And he can pry into the house. I mean, he, he did this, you know, very ethically. He contacted the previous owner and said, look, I can see everything that's going on in your house. I have access. I can gain entry into it. And it's not... It's completely unacceptable that this would be permitted. So I think some action should be taken against that security company for not disarming it, despite his multiple efforts to tell them, you have to turn this off. I was reading that um, home security systems are big business in Canada. This is according to a report in a CBC story that uh, they are worth $2.6 billion a year. And this company, Vivint, that you know is at the heart of this story is the second yeah. has the second largest share of national security systems um this year by the end of 2020 they will after ADT so a lot of people use this uh, company and what this company uh, says is their policy requires 30 days notice for cancellation but it, it also says it, it can cut off access right away if needed well course. it's needed when you leave the house when you transfer ownership you no longer need their services you need to have security cut off no that's why this is so unacceptable. It makes absolutely no sense. He, they were notified that this individual is leaving. He sold the house to someone else. Turn the damn thing off. That's why he's notifying you. Why wouldn't you do that right away? I mean, to, to wait 30 days is absurd. He's notifying you. He says, I'm out on such a date. Turn the security system off. I'm no longer part of that household. It is completely unacceptable. And just think, you could place people at such risk. This individual acted very Mm -hmm. responsibly, the previous homeowner. But what if he didn't? What if he wanted to pry into the activities of the new homeowner or do do far worse things? Sure. It's crazy. It it, it leans towards uh, horror stories and voyeurism. If there's cameras throughout the house and and, uh, possible uh, theft of, of property. Uh, you know, you could, could, hey, you could be watching, internet security could be at risk. Absolutely. You know, absolutely. Um, So let's talk about why this company doesn't cancel um, their, their security plans right away. It's because they want to get the new homeowner's business, but this seems counterintuitive. It's totally counterintuitive because it works against them. Who would want to continue using that service, given that this is the way they behave, um, you know, I would delete that service and get another one. But this is, it shows, it's not even a matter of respect. I was going to say it shows no respect for the new homeowner. It's not a matter of respect. Legally, surely you should be required to follow the instructions given by the previous, previous homeowner saying, I'm not there anymore. Turn this off. Is there any legal obligation for the previous homeowner to cancel the system? There should be, not that I'm aware of. I mean, I would hope that someone would, you know, file a court challenge uh, against this company, um, you know, saying, look, I told them I was out of the house on such and such a date, turn the service off. They didn't do it and it placed the new homeowners at, in jeopardy. And when you move into a new house and you see that it's outfitted with the security system, should you be calling the security system to make sure that they do not have it active under the previous owner's name? Well, you normally wouldn't think you'd have to, but especially after stories like this, for sure. 
I would contact them and say, I want to I want to be insured that no one else can gain entry into my house through the security service. Obviously, the previous owner had it um, introduced, had it lodged into my house. He's no longer there. Can you confirm this with me? You know, I would say trust but verify. Yeah, unfortunately, these days we have to, in fact, don't even trust, just verify. Go into certainty mode, contact them, and have them assure you, ideally in writing, that nothing's happening, that no previous owner can gain access to your home. And you don't want to get lazy about this because basically it's the same yeah. thing as not changing, well, it's even worse than not changing your locks on your doors, but that does come right. into play here. Of course. And see, the changing the locks on the doors, everybody would just think it's it's so obvious they mm-hmm. would do that. But with a security service, I mean, it's electronic, so you just assume they're going to turn off the previous guy's access. Of course. Apparently not. This also speaks to something that you've talked about for years, is Canada's weak privacy laws. These were passed yeah. over two decades ago. How... Yeah. How far away or how close are we to changing and updating our laws? Because we're living in a different world now. It's so completely obvious. Totally, Kelly. We're not getting anywhere, unfortunately. What's the holdup? It's Trudeau. Our former, uh, our federal um, privacy commissioner, Daniel Terrain, has gone to Trudeau repeatedly over the past four or five years saying, we need to upgrade our privacy laws. They were introduced early 2000s. They're, they no longer have any teeth. I need additional authority. We need greater coverage. Please, let's do this. And in 2018, um, there, he got one positive response back because something that I created called Privacy by Design, which is a very strong form of protecting privacy, was included in a new law that came into effect in the European Union called the General Data Protection Regulation. They included my Privacy by Design framework in that. So Commission Terrain goes to Trudeau and says, look, we need to upgrade our laws and we need to add privacy by design into our new law because, after all, it was created by one of ours, Canadian, Anne Kavukin. So in response to that, in 2018, they published a paper called Towards Privacy by Design, the feds did. So we were optimistic they were going to upgrade the privacy laws and include privacy by design. Do you think there's been any action on that? Nothing. Zero. This is a huge problem. But... Just the updating of privacy rules, I mean, it's uh, it's something that is so incredibly important, especially now with uh, our, our um, you know, everything going online. Everything is online without a solid foundation of security from end to end with full life cycle protection. You're not going to have any privacy. This has to be upgraded. And this is one very good example of that. We need so to who benefits businesses. Well, you know, I don't even think businesses benefit because this is so short-sighted. In the example that we just talked about, the new homeowner could take them Mm -hmm. to court and say, you're giving access to the previous guy when he notified you, you know, weeks ago and told you to to turn off his access. And you haven't done that. And imagine there's a burglary or something happens and they're at risk. So he, you know, he could take them to court easily. Mm -hmm. We've got to get some movement on this. And I want to thank you for your time. Uh, it's frustrating, but I always appreciate talking to you. I think if we keep talking about these things, then hopefully enough people start making uh, noise and things will happen. We've seen that the government, especially during COVID, can make changes to laws and uh, legislation pretty darn quickly. One can only hope. Thank you, Kelly. All right. Pleasure. Thanks so much. And Kabukian talking about a, a scary story. If you've uh, moved into a house, don't forget, call your uh, the security um, company. 
that, you know, might have outfitted your previous owner, make sure it's off unless you want to sign up again. But it's good to make sure that you're, you're the only one who has access to it. As restaurants are bracing for cold weather, the second wave, we've got uh, the situation here in Toronto where, uh, and the GTA in the province, in fact, it's province-wide, but it started in Toronto where uh, last call is scaled back to 11 o'clock. So bars are now worried about the fact that they don't have as many hours to make money uh, with, and Canada's restaurant industry is bracing for the impact of patio closures as the cold weather arrives. You know, B-O-B, or B-Y-O-B, rather, Chris, used to mean bring your own booze. Now it means bring your own blanket when it comes to patios because, you know, people are getting out to the patio. They want to stay around. They want to support their local business. They want to stay there as long as they can. And because the weather is getting colder, uh, you got to make sure you wrap up. Second wave of COVID-19 could cripple the industry. Here to talk about a new idea to help them stay afloat. James Rylett is Vice President of Restaurants Canada. You've heard him on the show before. Welcome back, James. Good to have you back. Good morning. Thanks for having me again. So you are calling on Ottawa to directly support the restaurant industry through something that I I think actually was quite successful in the UK. uh, If it's going to be a similar situation uh, or a similar plan as they uh, implemented, it's meal subsidies. Can you talk about what you're proposing? Well, what we asked them, exactly asked them to look at the UK plan, Um, the UK uh, program program. um, it was called Eat, in to, Eat Out to Help Out. Um, they subsidized up to 50% of a bill, um, up to 10 pounds. So what they found was um, some restaurants had up to 60% of their uh, business, higher business than even the year before. Um, this is only for Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, which are typically the slowest days of the year, of the week, sorry. Um, but what they found was the business just kept coming and even even the rest of the week that uh, business was up. So it was very successful and uh, we're hoping the, uh, the that they can emulate it here. And so are you proposing this uh, meal subsidy for Mondays through Wednesdays just as the UK did and hoping that Thursdays and Fridays and Saturdays will take care of themselves? Well, we that's one of the options. We th- we'd love to have the discussions. We just want to start the conversation, and uh, um, if the government has a better idea, or if or if uh, people think it'll work better a different way, we're definitely willing to look at it. We know that's work- what worked in UK, and so that's our starting point. But by all means, if there's some better ideas, we're willing to steal them. So you're hoping to start the conversation. That means the conversation hasn't begun yet. Uh, it's getting late to start this conversation. So. Um, how desperate is it for your members? Um, well, it's pretty dire. Uh, I talked to a lot of them that, that basically said the summer was almost an unreality, where it seemed like things were getting better. Um, the summer was great. It was a great patio season. The, the very few rain-out days. The weather was beautiful. So um, it, they started to rely on patios and outdoor service quite a bit more than they usually would. So when that's been taken away, uh, it's going to be it's going to hit hard. And I think everyone's now looking at the uh, debt that they've accumulated throughout the, this pandemic and, and wondering whether they'll be able to continue. And what about the uh, last call hours being uh, shortened? Uh, the restaurant hour, restaurant bar hours. Last calls now eleven o'clock in the province. What are you hearing from your mem- from your members about that? Um, well, it's kind of a good news, bad news thing. Uh, obviously, the the fewer hours, uh, the less income you can get. So that's that's unfortunate. But 
the alternative was to shut down the industry totally, uh, like we saw back in uh, back in March. So um, we'll take the take what we can. Uh, it's it's definitely not ideal, but it's it's better than the alternative. Sylvain Charlebois, he's a professor of food distribution and policy at Dalhousie University. And I was reading that he um, said that your plan that you're asking the government to support um, the restaurant industry through meal subsidies, he says that it's a bit like food stamps for the rich. What do you say to that reaction? Uh, well, I, you know, I'm not a... I'm not an academic. I don't look at it that, that way. I, what I look at is how do we get people back in the restaurants? What the biggest problem we have right now is is a lot of people haven't eaten at, or at indoors at a restaurant and don't realize how safe it is and don't realize what precautions the the uh, staff and the management are taking to keep you safe in a restaurant. And we truly believe uh, a program like this will get people that that haven't been back into restaurants to go into a restaurant and, and experience that and realize how much they miss it. And, uh, they'll be back. Is there a difference between restaurants and bars in your mind? Because we've seen some outbreaks in Toronto, uh, one bar there, there are now three staff members. I think it's regulars. If you're a regular regulars, uh, you got to get yourself checked out or at least, uh, self isolate and monitor yourself for, uh, about two weeks time because they had three staff members that tested positive for COVID-19. Yeah, that's unfortunate. We, we are seeing, um, I think what we're seeing mostly is staff-to-staff transmission, and that's been happening after hours when the unfortunate side of the bars is, is people get off late, they're young people, and they'll often uh, mingle with, with the way they shouldn't uh, after hours. So it's unfortunate that that's happening. Uh, we're management's looking at ways to to address it um but uh there's definitely a difference between restaurants and bars but uh if if people follow all the guidelines and follow the best practices uh there shouldn't be there is um uh, new brunswick has this travel incentive program that allows new brunswickers to apply for 20 percent rebate on eligible expenses like food and drinks at restaurants up to a thousand dollars Oh, is this something you would you would also uh, like to see happen here in Ontario? For sure, we've when the New Brunswick program came out, we uh, we fully supported it. We thought it was a great idea, and you know our industry is probably hurting the worst, but uh, tourism industry is also very hard hit. So, uh, if it helps both, that's great. Um, so, like I said, we're we're willing to talk about any program that that can help and. Uh, will help the uh, government craft whatever they want to do. If people online have, have pointed out that the government throws a ton of money at car industries, uh, it, but not so much for restaurants. Is the government letting uh, restaurants down, in your opinion? Yeah, I, uh, unfortunately, I think we're taken for granted a bit. Uh, the car companies can easily just say, well, we'll move elsewhere. And a restaurant can't do that at restaurants uh is where their customers are. Um, so unfortunately, it looks like it feels like we're being taken uh, for granted sometimes. Um, restaurants high, employ 1.2 million people across the country. Um, I think car auto industry employs 100,000 or something like that. I'm not saying they're not deserving of those uh, subsidies, but um, if you're going to if you're going to prop up an industry, ours definitely needs a, assistance right now. 
Meal subsidies wouldn't just apply to eating in restaurants, right, James? Because, I, I mean, I'm one of those people that I'm extremely careful. I have a 90-year-old in my family that I see on a regular basis. So uh, going out to a restaurant isn't something I'm willing to do because it's a higher risk than, you know, getting takeout. Would that, the meal subsidies, apply to takeout? Is that is that what you are proposing to the government as well as eating in? Um, the the program we're basing this off didn't. It was just an, an eat-in uh, eat uh, program. Uh, definitely, it's something we could look at. Uh, there's there's many things we could look at on the takeout side to lower the price. And, you know, first, the the, uh, the cost of the uh, delivery services is one. Um, so we can look at both separately. But this, this proposal right now is, is mostly for dining customers. James, before I let you go, can you punctuate just how much in dire need of help the restaurants are across Canada, and uh, especially in Ontario, if we don't get meal subsidies, if government doesn't move ahead to try and do something to help out our restaurants as we get set for colder weather, what is the situation looking like? Um, you know, we're still estimating about half of independents won't make it if if there's not continued subsidies. Uh just think about your favorite rep- restaurant, and there's fifty percent chance they won't be there next time. So, I think that that uh, illustrates exactly what we're facing: is um, restaurants are digging into their personal savings right now to stay open, and that's not a that's not a sustainable case. So, um, hopefully, we can uh, turn it around and uh, get get over get through this pandemic sooner than later. James, thanks so much for your time, and uh, and I wish you the best of luck with your conversations with the government. Uh, thanks a lot, and have a great day. Cheers. That's James Rylett. He's Vice President of Restaurants Canada. I don't know why we don't adopt things like this. If we see it working somewhere else, isn't it isn't it a no-brainer to adopt that? I mean, even if it's a subsidy, you're looking at the fact that you're keeping people employed. If those restaurants close, where are those people going? They're going to EI. And so then we're going to be paying through EI to keep these people afloat. Uh rather than, you know, keeping our restaurant industry healthy. Let's keep our fingers crossed on that conversation. Well, that's it for the podcast. Thanks so much for tuning in. We broadcast three hours daily on Global News Radio, 640 Toronto, between 9 and noon. Hopefully you can spare some time for us. Other than that, tell your friends we podcast, and we'll talk to you again soon. Cheers.